Lord, this morning we want to lift up a church in our community and a pastor and his family. I want to lift up Dixon Baptist Church and Randy Felder and his family. First of all, first of all I want to pray for Randy. I pray that you would guard him from... Um, Guard him from routine. I pray that you would guard him, not that routine is bad, that you would guard him from ruts, I guess. That you would guard him from the ease of dropping in the easy and the um, commonplace to where he misses out on the gravity of what he's actually doing each week. Lord, I pray that as he sits and studies, as he's provided for as a pastor, as he is shepherding the flock, as he is tending to his own family, I pray that he is constantly and consistently amazed with the scandal, first of all, of the gospel. That grace would reach so low for the likes of us. Secondly, that he has an opportunity to do what he's doing and a privilege and a call to do what he's doing. I pray that that call is fueled by worship. Just know how easily it can be fueled by other things. I pray that you would guard him from that as you would guard me from that. Lord, I pray for his marriage. I pray that his marriage is a growing uh, application and image of the gospel so that his family and his children and his friends see the gospel lived out in the way that he and his wife enjoy life together and enjoy you. Pray that that will spill over, that worship not, will, will not only spill over on a family, but spill over in, from the pulpit and into the study and into the um, lunch tables or wherever he might engage your people and that you'll be glorified through that. I pray for this church, Dixon Baptist Church, in whatever way that you may see fit that we can come alongside this church and serve in a way that is contrary to competition. Pray that we can serve in a way that we're, we're greater than the sum of our parts. And where lost Greenville, our apostate Greenville, our Greenville that just doesn't care, can marvel at how people can come together and be about your work and your kingdom. Lord, I'm thankful for the meeting that we had together this week with Randy. Thankful for what is possibly in store. And pray that you'll be glorified in that. Pray that whatever way, whether it's official or not, that we can serve together with folks, believers in our community, cheering for them, wanting great things in their churches, in their families, for your glory and for your namesake. Lord, also this week, I want to lift up a local official and a new official. I want to pray for Steve Reed and uh, his new role as mayor of Greenville. Lord, knowing, trusting that he professes you as Savior and Lord, I pray that his, uh, his role as mayor and on the council will be fueled first and foremost and consistently by worship. I pray that you will guard his heart from other influences, any other influences, but be, they'll be fueled by worship. And I pray that you will use his place on the council to your own ends and for your own glory in your time. 
Lord, in these next few minutes that we spend together, I pray for a collective um, movement downward as we are informed about our serious condition as light is shed on what Christ actually did that will create in us a confidence to step out salty, bright, and aromatic in our problems and that you'll be glorified in that. We turn this time over to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay, we're in Hebrews chapter 2. And we're in a passage of Scripture, verses 14 through 18, that I don't know if there is as dense a section of Scripture, five verses, that so wonderfully explain why Jesus became, why God, the Son specifically, became flesh. It seems like something like that ought to be a given, like a, a no-brainer. But think about the conversation, how it might unfold in the workplace if someone who's not a Christian turns to you, Bob, why did God the Son become flesh? Or a kid turns to his parent and says, Dad or Mom, why did God the Son, why did Jesus become flesh? This is a great passage of Scripture to turn to because three really distinct and important and robust reasons are explained here to the Hebrews church. We're going to read this passage of Scripture, but I want us to sort of immerse ourselves back in it and climb back in it, climb back into the context of the Hebrews church. The Hebrews church was a messianic, what we would call today a messianic Jewish church, primarily Jewish, maybe exclusively Jewish, they were Hellenistic Jews that were part of the dispersion through um, exiles or times of persecution where they, where they were dispersed all over the Roman Empire. And we believe that this little Hebrew church was in Rome. This little Hebrew church, likely small, was likely a house church, was in Rome in a time where they were facing severe persecution. It's likely that their family members served as human torches in Nero's garden or at least their acquaintances. These guys were living and worshiping in a time of severe persecution, and something was happening in this Hebrew church where they were going into cautious mode. They were playing it safe. They locked their doors, they hunkered down, and they were playing it safe, and they weren't being faithful like their parents had been. And this Hebrews preacher writes them what, is, what amounts to a sermon, the whole book of Hebrews, is one big, fat, robust sermon to encourage them to unlock their doors, to step out into the mess, and to be faithful in the mess. He's encouraging them in these verses 14 through 18 with the reality of what Christ did in taking on flesh, what he actually accomplished. Let's go there. Verses 14 through 18 of chapter 2. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, flesh and blood. That, here's the first thing, through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. The first of three important things. That he destroys the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Secondly, 
that he will deliver all those who through fear of death are subject or were subject to lifelong slavery. We've engaged that in these past few weeks and considered the slavery and bondage to fear of death, knowing that you're going to meet your maker unprepared. That's where fear of death comes from. For those who are in Christ that know that we're reconciled with our creator, we don't have to fear death. We're liberated and delivered from that lifelong slavery through the exodus that is the cross. And in verse 16, we're going to come back to in a couple weeks. For surely it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. If he was going to help angels, he would have taken on the nature and character of angels. But he didn't. He took on flesh and blood just like you and me. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. This verse 17 is where we're going to camp out these next couple of weeks. And verse 18, just for sake of context, we'll close it out. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. These next few weeks, we're going to focus on primarily, next couple of weeks, we're going to focus primarily on verse 17. And we're going to sort of expose the character and role of the high priest that was and is Jesus. Okay. Verse 17, I'm going to read it again and we're going to start to climb into it. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Three things I want to draw out, and they are not complicated. One thing about this sermon this morning, it's not a complicated sermon. It's simple, but not easy. First, he was made like his brothers. Turn to Isaiah chapter 6. As you're turning there, I want to give you a little bit of background. I don't want to take anything for granted in engaging these passages. When it says he's made like his brothers, there's the implication that he wasn't like his brothers in the first place. He was not in human form before the conception by the Holy Spirit in Mary's womb. He had a place in the high court of heaven, an eternal place as a very spiritual being. You may be familiar, you might be thinking in your minds of passages like John chapter 1. Don't turn there, just listen. I want you to stay in Isaiah chapter 6 and be ready for something. Passages like this tell us something about the nature of Jesus before he took on flesh. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything that was made. Christ already was. He's the agent of creation, Hebrews chapter 1 tells us. And then in verse 14, a connection to Bethlehem, and the word became flesh and dwelled among us, and we've seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. In the beginning, he already was. I don't want to assume anything when we're considering that he's made like his brothers, so I want us to consider just for a moment what he was before he was made like his brothers. John chapter 12 is a little escort back to Isaiah chapter 6. It's an illuminating escort. I've always wondered where Jesus was before the incarnation. 
And John chapter 12 sent us back to show us some pretty awesome things. Let me share a couple of passages with you from John chapter 12, and then we're going to go back and look at Isaiah. And John chapter 12 is an explanation why everyone didn't believe in Jesus. It's an explanation why at points in his ministry they left in droves. And it's also an explanation why at the final point of his ministry, well, I shouldn't say final, almost penultimate point, where he's crucified by the same crowd that a week earlier cheered for him, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's an explanation that harkens back to Isaiah chapter 6 where Isaiah has a vision of the throne room vision of God. And we're about to look at that. In that text, God asks, we'll see who it is specifically. God charges someone to go and preach his message. And it says, as you go, their ears will be deafened and their hearts will be hardened. It's an explanation of what they're seeing in Christ's ministry right here. That's the point where Isaiah, often mishandled by people, say, I'll go, send me. And really what he's saying is, how long do I have to do that? (laughs) That sounds like a bummer of a ministry. The more I preach, the deafer they're going to be and the harder their hearts they're going to be. John is taking us back to this Isaiah passage. I want to give you that reference so you see this grounded in where we're going. In John chapter 12, John writes the words that take us back to Isaiah chapter 6. In verse 40 and then unto 41, he says, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and he spoke of him. Let's go back and look at Christ's glory. You may have read these words before. I've heard them preached, heard them read, and never seen Christ. John was talking about Jesus. It says, Jesus, it says, Isaiah is talking about Jesus right here. Listen to this, Isaiah chapter six. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. John says that Isaiah saw Jesus. This is before Bethlehem. It's before he is made like his brothers. Let's see what he looks like. He sees him on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, with two he flew. And one called to another and said, just like we sang this morning, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Jesus? You're red looking, thinking about Jesus right there? John says, Isaiah saw his glory and he wrote about him. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me for I am lost for I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. I take you back there because before we consider that he's made like his brothers, I want you to see what he looked like before he's made like his brothers. Shocking, white hot, let me find a crack in the floor to hide glory. Train filling the temple type glory. But he's made like his brothers. I want you to think about something just for a moment. When it says that he is made like his brothers, in some ways, this is like an artist becoming the painting. 
This is like an artist becoming canvas and strokes and colors. He's made like his brothers is like the musician becoming the notes on a page. Say that he's made like his brothers is like the writer becoming the book. Second thing I want you to see this morning. See, it's simple, not easy. Second thing I want you to see this morning, turn to Leviticus chapter 16, is that he's made like his brothers. And I got some bad news for you. His brothers aren't very impressive. His brothers aren't very impressive. Leviticus chapter 16, I want to just tell you, I'm setting you up for something next week. Okay, I'm preparing you for a place that we're really going to climb into next week. We're really going to climb into Leviticus chapter 16 next week because we're going to see the high priest at work. We're going to see the high priest that Hebrews preacher takes the Hebrews church to moving and doing what he does. His name is Aaron. So we're going to take a real good look at Leviticus chapter 16 next week. But I want you to see context around Leviticus chapter 16. Listen to this. We'll start with verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they drew near before the Lord and died. Now, I bet if I took a poll this morning, some of you might know who these jokers are, but let's make sure that we all know who these jokers are because this is connected to where we're where we are in Hebrews. Turn to Leviticus chapter 10. Leviticus chapter 16 is going to be the instruction that God gives the nation of Israel for how God is going to dwell with an unholy people. He's going to make a way that the people can atone for their sins through the sacrifice of an innocent. It's very detailed instructions on God's pattern for worship, thinking about Scott's recent, recent sermons. Now, I want you to see a glimpse of two jokers who did their own thing. The sons of Aaron, listen to chapter 10 of Leviticus. Now, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer, that's a little thing that would hold incense and coals, and, he put, and they put fire in it, and they laid incense on it and offered unauthorized. If you have your ESV Bible, you look down at the bottom, that word also means strange. They offered unauthorized or strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. He had to button it. Because Nadab and Abihu went freestyle. They did their own thing in worship. God has a very detailed prescription for how he's supposed to be worshiped. But Nadab and Abihu went their own way. I want to gather up Nadab and Abihu, and I want to go back to Leviticus chapter 16, picking up, just so you know who they are now, in verse 2. And the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron your brother 
not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil, not to go freestyle in worship, not to offer strange worship whenever you think might be appropriate for the living God before the mercy seat that's on the ark so that he may not die like his boys did. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat, but in this way, Aaron shall come into the holy place with a bull from the herd as a sin offering and a ram for the burnt offering. Moses is taking the nation of Israel. God is taking Moses and the nation of Israel to connect to Nadab and Abihu's freestyle program and then to his prescribed way on the day of atonement. Here's how you're going to worship me. Now, the reason I bring all three of those jokers in view Aaron, you might read right there, and you go, he's not a joker. There's some other places you can read about Aaron to find that Aaron's a joker too. The reason I bring Aaron in, now remember I'm setting you up for next week, but the reason I'm bringing Nadab and Abihu in is because what I want you to see is that when it says Jesus is made like his brothers, his brothers is not just his faith brothers. He's talking about his human brothers and Nadab and boneheaded Abihu, and then Aaron provide a nice contrast for who Jesus is made like. He's made like Nadab and Abihu? What? Aaron, I could handle. That's only if you hadn't read other sections about Aaron. But Aaron, maybe I could handle, but Jesus is gonna be made like Nadab and Abihu? That would be like me saying this morning, Jesus was made like his brothers like Charles Manson. like Hitler. You might be okay with me saying that he's made like his brothers like Jim Elliott or Jonathan Edwards or Martin Luther, but let me say that he's also made like his brothers Charles Manson, Hitler, and Ted Bundy. He's made like the human kind. He's made like the human brother. One who was one substance with the Father became one substance with the likes of you and me, and Nadab, and Abihu, and Aaron, and everybody in between, the good, the bad, and the ugly. God did that. God the Son was made like his brothers, and his brothers aren't impressive. Third, he's made like his brothers in every respect. I'm going to take you on a little journey in these next few minutes, and I just want you to listen. Unless you're just like sword drill hero, you're not going to be able to follow me in these next few minutes. I have about eight or ten passages I want to share with you, and I'm going to share them quickly because we're going to gather some data on the every respect thing. He's made like his brothers in every respect. Here's the first thing. Luke chapter 24, beginning in verse 36. We're gathering data on how he's made like us in every respect. As they were talking about these things, this is after Christ's crucifixion and resurrection, they're talking about what just took place and Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. They thought they saw a spirit. But he said to them, why are you troubled and why do your doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, 
that it is I myself, touch me, touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when they said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. The first thing I want you to know about Jesus is that he had very real, and this is ironically in his resurrection body, we could say he currently has flesh and bones. The one whose robe filled the temple, the one who had seraphim floating around him all day long saying, holy, holy, holy is, is this lamb, this king of kings right here in front of us. Takes on flesh and bone. Secondly, he's made with parents. This is where it's going to get real personal. It may not. Luke chapter 2, verse, beginning in verse 48. Jesus separated from his parents at one point as a boy and snuck off to the temple. He didn't sneak. He just landed at the temple. He wouldn't, I don't envision him sneaking. He goes to the temple and he's teaching and studying and asking questions and pick up in verse 48. And when his parents saw him, they found him at the temple. They were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them. Listen to this. God, the son whose robe is filling the temple, seraphim, flying around him, takes on very real flesh and blood, and he went down with his imperfect parents and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. I'm just reading that passage, and I'm thinking, man, that just blows my mind. He's submissive to them? The fact that they could put together a thought, our son Jesus is missing. The fact that their blood could course through their veins and, and capillaries and mobilize their muscles to go look for him is only because of him. Colossians tells us that he's the one in whom all things are held together. The fact that they had cells that worked together as one unit to where they could go look for their boy is because it was held together in him. And he submits to them? That's shocking, shocking humility. Next, Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Watch this. Is not this the carpenter? 
the son of Mary and his brother James and Joseph and Judas and Simon and are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, a prophet's not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty works there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. There's two things we can grab from this passage. First of all, that Jesus was a carpenter? The one whose train filled the temple. The one whose white hot holiness was so white, so consuming that Isaiah is looking for a crack in the floor to hide, is a day laborer. A carpenter? God as a carpenter? And God as astonished? Another thing that blows my mind, that God could be and would be astonished. So God's going to take on flesh and blood. God's going to have a mom and dad that he's to submit to. God is. God's going to be a day laborer as a carpenter with calluses and a tool belt. And that God's going to be astonished. It blows my mind. Does it blow yours? Here's a couple of really easy ones. Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, just listen to these words and think about these words being said about God. He was hungry what he's hungry here's another example of this it just it's crazy when you think about it this other example is in chapter 21 verse 18 for you sword drillers where is it in the morning he's returning to the city as he's returning to the city God became hungry doesn't say God but He's God the Son. He became hungry and seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once right there in front of it. Crazy. The fact that God has flesh and bones, the fact that God has parents that he's going to submit to, the fact that God is a day laborer and a carpenter, the fact that God got hungry should blow your mind. Remember when he's passing through Samaria and he stops at a well and the disciples go into town to get some food and Jesus is sitting there by a well and a Samaritan woman comes and she's dipping out some water and you remember what he asked her for? Let me have some of that water because he's thirsty. God is thirsty? Remember one of the last things that he said on the cross, not the very last, but one of the last things he said on the cross, two words, I thirst. Does that shock you? That God would take on flesh, that he would take on parents, that he would take on a job as a carpenter, that he would become hungry, that he would become thirsty. Another example, John chapter 13, another data point. 
John chapter 13, beginning in verse 21. After saying these things, he's just washed the disciples' feet. He's talking about his cross that's, that's imminent. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. So we could add to the list that God was troubled. You can jot down Luke chapter 10 and find in Luke chapter 10, verses 21 through 24, that God is happy. Here's one that I really enjoy in Luke chapter 11, knowing the heartache that some of you have gone through at times. John chapter 11 is the story of death and loss. A family that Jesus is close to, a family from Bethany, Lazarus, Mary, and Martha, a brother and two sisters. Lazarus is sick. He's about to die. Mary and Martha sin for Jesus and his disciples, I'm not going to go just yet. I'm going to wait until he's dead. And then I'm going to show up and I'm going to be glorified in that. And sure enough, he waits till he dies. And then he goes off to Bethany. Martha meets him and says, if only you'd been here, he wouldn't have died. And Jesus says these words, your brother's going to rise again. I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Then he talks with Mary. Verse 28, when she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher's here, and he's calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were there with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, God was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And the next two words, when you think about it, Jesus wept. So God weeps also. God has taken on flesh and bones. He's taken on parents. He's taken on a job as a day laborer, a carpenter. He's gotten hungry. He's gotten thirsty. He's gotten astonished. He's been happy. He's wept. He also told jokes. You may not realize this. He told jokes. Here's one that would have been a real laugher, belly laugher. He's speaking to the scribes and the Pharisees, and he says, you blind guides, you're straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. It's hard in the pages of it to really get into the humor of it, but this would have been a belly laugher. You're straining out a wee gnat, and you know what you've done? you swallowed a camel. So this God, the Son, did all these things. He got tired and he needed to rest. This one just really blows my mind. Mark chapter 4 tells a story of a boat. 
On that day when evening had come, he said to them, let's go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took with him or took him with them in the boat just as he was and other boats were with him and a great windstorm arose and the waves were breaking into the boat so the boat was already filling but he was in the stern asleep on the cushion God was in the stern asleep on the cushion we have to ask ourselves the question and really marvel just for a moment God what are you doing in a boat I mean, it's amazing that you calm the storm, but really the bigger question is, what in the world are you doing in a boat? Here's one that blesses me, the last one. John chapter 19, as he's hanging on the cross, the soldiers divide his garments, they cast lots for his garments, and standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother, and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother, the one he submitted to, the one that must have been imperfect, the one that must have gone John Wayne parenting at times. Anybody else guilty of that? That mother, Jesus, is hanging on the cross, fighting for every breath, because that's what happens on the cross, is dry land drowning fighting for every breath on the cross, when he saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son, pointing at John. And he turns to John and he says, John, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. This God loved his mom. Can you just for a moment take these things in that he took on flesh and blood, that he got hungry, that he got thirsty, that he worked as a carpenter, that he's astonished, that he got stressed out and troubled, that he wept, that he told jokes, that he got tired and actually had to sleep. And that he loved his mom. Can you for a moment consider the shock of these things in God? Can you for a moment marvel that he submitted to parents who must have mishandled stuff at times and yet he humbled himself and he submitted to them? Can you consider for a moment that he humbled himself by working as a carpenter, making one chair at a time, when in a moment he hung the Orion and the Pleiades, and he's making chair legs? Think about it. Can you consider the shock of a God with a sense of humor? Does it bless you to know that your God weeps when you weep? When you think about the reality that God the Son would leave the eternal bliss of heaven 
being rightly sung about all day long. Being rightly worshipped by the elders as they're casting their crowns before him. The seraphim are flying around him saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of God. That he would leave that for thirst, hunger, parents, and carpentry. Does that shock you? This humility beyond comprehension. This merciful and faithful high priest, by taking to himself a body, a body that's just like his unimpressive brothers, Nadab, Abihu, Aaron, you, and me, humbled himself. I have a one-point sermon. Turn to Philippians chapter 2. One point, just one. I'm going to see if we can do this. It's going to be interesting. But it's a big one. Simple, not easy. <clears throat> one point sermon. As you're turning there, I'm going to equip you with some language. Oh, sorry. From Peter. Don't sniff and hold your hand to a microphone at the same time ever. It's bad. Listen to this language from Peter. I'm going to equip you with some language before we read from Paul. You'll understand why I'm doing this in a minute. Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 4, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. The language I want to borrow from Peter and want to give to Paul is to arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. I was sitting reading with the family this week. This is where we are in 1 Peter. We're going to chapter 5 the next time we sit and read. In chapter 4, we read that, and I was like, ooh, I love that. Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. It's like I'm putting a, a, a goods in your hands. I realize I scare people when I talk about guns. I, I'm arming you with something in the next couple minutes. I'm going to arm you with something, with a way of thinking. Philippians chapter 2, listen to this. Now, we're taking that language of arming, and we're going to go to Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Paul is writing to a church. We could imagine that God is speaking to us as a church this morning through this, which he is. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy... Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, that's easy, but also to the interests of others. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Simple, not easy, right? I mean, anybody got this down? <laughs> I realized that just from a few months ago, a couple months ago, probably, that this is sort of a redundant message on humility. Christy asked me last night, just as I'm drifting off to sleep, she said, uh, what's the sermon about in the morning? I said, humility. She said, oh, I don't need to go then. 
she's joking. She's like, oh, you're not supposed to say that. It was totally a joke. In fact, I woke up, I was laughing so hard because she's totally joking. I realized we cannot overdo humility. We can't. I am the guy that, pre, that in the closing prayer a few years ago, after preaching on humility, prayed the same, this is me, that we would be known in Greenville as the most humble church in Greenville. <laughs> I mean, really, does that hit you funny? It makes me laugh even now years later when I think about it. Lord, I want us to be known as the most humble church anywhere. H. Seriously, does anybody have humility down? Paul's writing to this church and saying, man, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. But he just doesn't leave them hanging right there and just give them this lofty thing to do. He takes them to the same place the Hebrew preacher is taking a bunch of scared Hebrew believers. That's what he says next. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, seraphim, holy, 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 is the Lord Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Think about all these things. Elders casting their crowns all day long. I don't know, I have to pick them back up, cast them again. Had like a little retriever. All day long. Appropriately. Robe filling the temple, who though he's in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He's fully God. And he's saying, I'm not even going to count it to be grasped. But he made himself nothing. He made himself like Nadab and Abihu. <laughs> really? He made himself where he would have to make a chair one leg at a time. Think about that. He made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Man, Paul is arming the Philippians church with a way of thinking. If I just told you, said, man, you need to be humble. You need to consider other people's things and needs, you know, in front of your own. You'd be like, okay, that sounds good, but you wouldn't go anywhere with it. But when I take you to what Christ did, and when that overwhelms you and that fuels you, then you're bumping into humility. Because you're seeing how low he stooped. You're seeing what he did. You're seeing that while fully God, he became, made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. Now that's fuel for humility. That's some goods right there. When you really look at a passage like this, when you really look at what the Hebrews preachers exposing over there in Hebrews chapter two, you have to ask yourself a few questions. In light of these realities, how can we be so proud? How can we continue to be so proud without ever a chink in it? 
these sort of messages like this that are redundant, that I need just like you do, they put chinks in that pride. And they shed light on it where you think about how ridiculous it is. <laughs> how dare he? Does he know who I am? You ever think like that? Who doesn't? This is made to equip you, to arm you with a different way of thinking where you really see the truth. Not just about God, but also about yourself. Nadab. <laughs> Anybody ever offered strange fire or your own version of it? Anybody ever said, I'm going to do it my way. I'm not going to do it God's way. I'm going to do what I want to do on my time in my way. How can we be so prone to defending ourselves and protecting ourselves? Chief, chief of sinners right here. A wretched worm is I. You might be visiting and you're like, man, that's sort of a weird song. I don't feel like a worm, you know. My wife, she's not a worm, you know. Through the lens of the word, we're all Nadab and Abihu. We're all Aaron. Read the rest of the story of Aaron. How then can we be so proud? How can we be so self-righteous? How can we look so closely at this? and yet be so blind to our own pride, our own high view of ourselves, which we all share, how can we be so fragile and volatile? I spend so much time here, and I, I'm still fragile and volatile. You can ask my wife. You can ask the elders. You can ask the deacons. These sort of realities are supposed to change that. And maybe they do. Every time we engage it, we bump into it. We go, man, why do I think so much of myself? Humility is having an accurate view of who he is and an accurate view of who you are relative him. Just because you're better than the next guy doesn't mean you compare to holiness. Man, I thought about how this would hit the Hebrew church, bumping into the humanity of the high priest and the sharing, you know, what they share, the brotherhood, the human brother, every respect sort of reality. And I thought, well, this should have reminded them and armed them with Christ's faithfulness in his difficulties and what that yielded. In his story, it yielded propitiation for you. It yielded the destruction of Satan, the deliverance from slavery to fear of death. It delivered a payment for sins once and for all time because he humbled himself and was faithful in that context. It should have left them with the notion and the encouragement to be faithful, not fearful, in their difficulties so that Christ's story and work and character would be displayed in dark Rome. I want you to get this because it's, it's going to connect to you here in just a second. We have to climb into the Hebrews connection and then our connection. It would have left them with an encouragement to be faithful, not fearful in their difficulties so that Christ's story and work and character would be displayed in dark Rome. So what does this have to do with us? We don't live in Rome 
but we have our versions of dark places. There are times, not so much anymore, used to be often, that Christy and I struggled in our marriage. We still have to work at it. I don't know that we ever won't. But there are times where, and there, even, even now, there are times where these sort of realities should invade our marriage. Where instead of me trying to get my point across and trying to win, for a moment I could listen. Men, it's come easy. Listen, trying to really hear and understand. Just buttoning it for a little while. You don't have to win. If though he's in the form of God, did not even consider it something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, then you can button it for a couple minutes. <laughs> Men, and you can listen to your wife and seek to really understand her. She's different from you. She thinks differently than you do. And if you're wise, you're going to learn to listen to her because she's going to round out your thinking. Together, you're greater than the sum of your parts. If you think you've got it figured out, man, you couldn't be any wronger. That's not a word. You couldn't be any more wrong. It should be a word. Parenting. Considering the humility of our high priest, how could I humble myself in parenting? Do you ever get short with your kids just because you're in a bad mood? Some of you that have most, you know, if you have kids. You ever get short with your kids just because you're in a bad mood? I mean, can anybody else be honest about that? <laughs> Some, I mean, well, I never. <laughs> I did it last night and with no good reason, barking at Luke for no good reason. And then at bedtime, I'm having to apologize and thinking, man, I'm supposed to preach on humility in the morning. I got to reconcile this. But even beyond because I'm preaching on it, because I'm supposed to be living it and walking in it. If though he's in the form of God, he didn't even consider something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, then I think I can come to my 12-year-old son and say, buddy, I was a horse behind you tonight. I'm sorry. You think your kids will think less of you because you do that? I don't think, though, but I think what they will think is I will think, I do think they will, this is like a Peter, like a, Tongue twister, <laughs> right? I think they'll think more of God. And if you actually even make the point to connect it to because I've been forgiven, scandalous, because I'm Nadab and Abihu, can you forgive me as an act of worship? What a great opportunity we have to build the gospel into our own kids and to humble ourselves. How about at work? Say you have a workmate that does everything they can to undermine what you do. Anybody ever had that? Some of you might be afraid to nod because the work might, might, might go to this church or something. Probably not. They would never go to this church. But you might have a scenario where you have somebody that you work with or somebody that you are running with in some way that's doing everything they can to undermine you. Why work so hard at defending yourself? Why work so hard at protecting yourself? 
Why work so hard at protecting your rights? I have to ask you a question. Do you feel better when you do that? Honestly? I don't. I don't feel better when I do that. But if in some way I can actually humble myself, because though he's in the form of God, he didn't consider that something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing. If because of that I can humble myself and not be so quick to defend myself, but actually consider that other person is more important than myself, and if they get credit for it, then I'm like, man, yeah, go. Good job. That feels a whole lot better than, what about me? You got to realize, man, I know some of you are probably sitting here thinking, you don't understand my work situation. You don't understand my marriage. You don't understand my parenting situation. That is the soil for this to be applied in. If you say that it's not relevant in your work situation or in your marriage or in your parenting or in that family relationship that you're like, oh, it's much more complicated than this, you're saying the gospel doesn't have the goods to, to be wielded there. You're saying that Christ's work and his example is not enough. Man, I encourage you, when those sort of occasions are invaded with an otherworldly humility fueled by the cross, then you have escorted Christ into that situation. There's a name for that. There's a few names for that. One is evangelism. That's what evangelism is. A bigger word for that is that's worship. When because of what Christ did impacts the way you move in your marriage, in your work, in your parenting, in your relationships, it has a name. It's called worship. That's as much or more worship than showing up here corporately on Sunday morning. This is massive. I hope you see that we have a really high view of us gathering corporately. But if this is all there is in your life, this, you're missing out on taking Christ into your workplace, into your marriage, into your den, into Wednesday, into your, whatever context you're in. That's what the Hebrews preacher is engaging the Hebrews church with. Take it into dark Rome. Take it into difficult marriage. Take it into difficult workplace. Take it into difficult relationship. When you do that, that's called worship. When you do that, you're being faithful. I don't really have a special fancy landing of the plane this morning. I have a little um, excerpt I was going to read earlier. This would be a nice way to end it. This is a little excerpt from a book called Vintage Jesus. Have any of you ever read Vintage Jesus? Show of hands. One, okay. This is written to, written by a guy named Mark Driscoll. Uh, Mark Driscoll is a pastor of a church in Seattle. And um, if you listen to him or you pull him up online, he's pretty racy, but not at the expense of the message. You consider his context. He's in Seattle. Um, I don't think he's going out of his way to be racy. I think that's just who he is. He's just who he is. Um, but he's grounded. I mean, well, well grounded in truth. He wrote this book called Vintage Jesus that's about Jesus, per the name. And there's a little section in here, chapter two, how human was Jesus? It's a good chapter. Here's how it starts. Jesus was a dude. 
Like my drywaller dad, he was a construction worker who swung a hammer for a living. Because Jesus worked in a day when there were no power tools, he likely had calluses on his hands and muscles on his frame and did not look like so many of the drag queen Jesus images that portray him with long flowing feathered hair, perfect teeth and soft skin draped in a comfortable dress accessorized by matching open toe sandals and handbag. (laughs) Jesus did not have Elton John or the Spice Girls on his iPod. He didn't have the view on his TiVo or a lemon yellow Volkswagen Beetle in his garage. No, Jesus was not the kind of person who, if walking by you on the street, would require you to look for an Adam's apple to determine the gender. He shares, sort of develops some of these messed up images of Jesus that show him as just kind of this feminine pushover. He says, my point in all of this is this, is, is that if we had seen Jesus as a man, we would have seen a normal guy carrying his lunchbox in one hand and toolbox in the other, heading off to work. He did the normal things that actual people do. I hope this is an encouragement to you this morning. I wanted to make it simple. I don't know how simple it was. I know it wasn't short, but simple is not the same thing as short. But I want to encourage you as fathers, husbands, Wives, mothers, daughters, sons, brothers, sisters, workmates, friends, neighbors, to explore how you can humble yourself. You've been armed with that this morning. Do you find yourself thinking far too much of yourself? Thinking about what you're due? Can you for a moment consider that something not to be grasped and made your, make yourself nothing? Because he made himself nothing. And can you take a salty, bright, aromatic worship into those dark spots? Let me pray for us. <clears throat> God, I'm so, um, I'm so thankful that you're redundant. And that your word over and over again takes us to things that we need to be reminded of. Things that we need to grow in. I'm thankful for this reminder this morning of a God that took on flesh and bone, took on parents, hunger, thirst, a troubled spirit, stress, astonishment thankful this morning for a picture of a God who weeps a God with a sense of humor a picture of a God who took on a day job as a carpenter Lord I pray these images and these realities and these truths about Christ this morning will arm us to walk low wherever we might take us. In Christ's name we pray, amen.